Welcome back to Protean Pirate Radio, where we pirates help you navigate the uncharted waters of end-stage capitalism. I'm your host and democratically elected, instantly recallable Captain Mel B, and I'm here joined today by the always lovely comrades from Inhabit. Hello again, friends. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves, say what you would like about the work that you do, and give us an idea of how long you've been working with Inhabit? Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm I'm Sean. I've been, I guess, working with uh, Inhabit for a few years now. In case anyone doesn't know, Inhabit is a um, anonymously and collectively written little book. It's a, a sort of like website. It's a social media campaign and kind of in general, um, like a, an initiative to, to, to build a platform for uh, revolutionary autonomy, uh, mostly rooted in North America. Um, however, kind of like with uh, lots of lots of friends and links outside. Personally, uh, I'm, I'm often in, involved in the kind of creative side of it. Um, so there was like a, a team uh, of people that worked on this. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's like a long ass backstory, but I'll just say my, my part, like, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in the creative team. Hi, everyone. This is James coming to you from the Northeast. Thanks to Mel for inviting us on the show. And thanks to my good old friend, Sean, uh, for helping to get everything arranged. We're happy to be here. Uh, like my friend Sean, we've been working with Inhabit since pretty much the inception, I would say, if not quite the very beginning. But, you know, for years, part of the backstory of this of this document, which eventually became a book, was kind of this collective anonymous word document passed around between groups of friends for a couple of years. And people worked on it and people workshopped it and it was read around campfires. And at the time, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it would become. It wasn't under the name of Inhabit. Those are things that emerged through a longer collective process where we realized what we were had stumbled upon. And we were very happy that eventually it took the form of the book and everything that it has become since then. You know, part of my engagement with it has been a bit of writing, a bit of research. I'm someone who's very interested in the question of climate change. I'm someone very interested in what that means for our ideas and concepts of revolution in the 21st century. So what I feel like I get from working with the wonderful crew of Inhabit is a chance to explore those ideas, which I think are absolutely critical to our time. Definitely. So before we move into the larger body of the conversation, you did bring up something interesting about the inception of Inhabit. So it really just emerged kind of organically among groups of activists all over the place, um, kind of just sort of sprung up into the ether and, and then became this project, this Inhabit project later on. Yeah. I mean, to like not to not dwell too hard on the backstory, um, but like an important part, you'll, you'll notice um, in the book on the website that there's a section at the end, you know, that, that says um, for the earth, for freedom, for Clark. So the, the book is, is dedicated to our friend Clark who, who passed away uh, tragically on his way to Standing Rock. And there was a, a get together to, to mourn him and to celebrate his life. And in and, and that this, this, um, this document had been already kind of floating around a little bit, but um, it was it was more rooted in like a very specific place. And then there was a proposal that, you know, could this thing be useful um, for a lot of people? And is there a way of us of kind of like, like there's, there's this like kind of heaviness to it um, where it's not just um, the, co the collection of this like networks, what do you call it? Like, the lessons that we've learned from the various struggles we've participated in, um, the ways we've lived, et cetera, in the last like 10, 20 years, but also um, in particular, like an attempt to, to do justice to our friend's life and to their own um, vision and intelligence that they brought and, and really led this network with. So uh, what happened was this proposal was made, like, could this be useful? And, and the overwhelmingly people were like, yes. And, and that kind of started the long um, collective like rewriting 
editing and in particular trying to bring our friend Clark's voice um, to to the text. That's so lovely. I love that. That's really cool. To kind of get into this discussion, um, because I want this to be a loose conversation and not your typical interview format, I believe that it, this topic specifically is better served that way. It's the second week of December, guys, uh, in the year of our Lord 2020. We are almost to the end of what could arguably be the worst year of our lives thus far. We are still living through the worst pandemic we've had in 100 years. We are on the cusp of a world-changing eviction crisis in this country and trying to stay afloat in an economy that has been completely shattered. Um, on top of all of this, the effects of climate change continue to worsen. The never-before-seen hurricane season and utter devastation of the wildfires around the world this last summer, I think, can give us a glimpse of what kind of things we are going to be looking at from now on. In other words, the apocalypse is here, and it's kind of boring and extremely terrifying. Um, so we're crashing through this nightmare together, whether we like it or not. But not all is as bleak as it seems, right? Inhabit offers a different way of looking at things, wouldn't you say? <laughs> James, what do you think, man? Well, I'll put it like this. Mel, I think your description is unfortunately spot on. This has been a year from hell. And I suppose to start with the pandemic, which I know is at the forefronts of everyone's minds and their daily experiences, you know, we're watching cases rise here in the relatively small town that I live in. And one of our dear friends who lives nearby is a doctor. And I've spent a lot of time with him this year thinking through what that experience must be like to be in the corridors of the overcrowded hospital, to be so present to death on this scale, to witness from up close the absolute failure of the elites to get us through this crisis. And in fact, mm -hmm. it seems like intentionally to plunge us further into it. And I happened to see our friend, the doctor this morning, and he was telling me just yesterday how much exposure that he had had. And for the listeners, I can tell you that we were masking outside and far apart, but just the things that he's experiencing on, on a daily basis. And it's like taking the winds right out of you. And I don't know how to think about this year other than that at an absolute mass scale, it's just having the wind knocked out of us as a civilization. And it's been, I think, immensely traumatic and painful. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things I've really been thinking about is we all, we know that the coronavirus has lingering health effects, and many of those effects are just not known, right? So one of the other ways to think about it, what will be the emotional or psychic fallout of this pandemic? We right. don't know what it's going to be like to have lived a year without the touch of other people, without the ability to meet new people in the world. We don't know what it'll cost for our own mental health. We might have an inkling of it from this year. But going forward in the long term, I really wonder what this exposure to death and vulnerability is going to do to us as individuals and as a society. I really feel like this is a transformative experience for us, and it's unclear where it's going to take us. Right. Yeah. I, I would agree. It's it's interesting. I mean, because I, well, I, I definitely don't want to downplay the like, the kind of loss that people have suffered through um, this year that had like just unimaginable scales, you know. Um, I also want to reckon, like, kind of like reckon with it all, I guess, that like, you know, like this is, it's it's almost kind of like the, coronavirus sort of accelerated everything everyone was the, the sort of like dystopian imagination of climate change and you know like I, I believe I'd say like we believe that you know we're sort of like like our time is really like located at this like nexus of um kind of like uh of the of apocalypse and like revolutionary potential and this year in particular really revealed that Right. Um, this is not like we, it wasn't um, just that we uh, experienced like um, a new sort of like um, scale and scope of suffering, um, but 
also that this is the same year that an uprising swept across the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of like, you know, the, the roots of like apocalypse, like is, is a sort of like unconcealing or revealing, right? And the, the sort of um, apocalyptic kind of like um, time we live in does have this like, you know, very clear um, way of, of revealing things to us, right? Um, how, did, how did coronavirus spread? Well, it spread through a like um, molecularly like global connected um, metropolitan network that is the infrastructure of this civilization, right? That's what accelerated this thing. Um, it's, it's like a joke in some countries or whatever, where they were like, oh, rich people, like they're the only ones who have it or something. But of course, you know, that, that dwindled down very quickly to everyone. Um, but there's still this way where like, um, we, have, we have to kind of like look at, um, you know, like what's really peel, peel away, not just our sort of um, the moral weight of all of this and, and see kind of like the uh, practical impacts of it on our, on our daily life and on the system itself. So what I want to say, uh, and, and just like pushing back a little bit on like how, how much like hell on earth we're in, it's like always this sort of like tension, I think between, um, you know, the, what was the philosopher? There's like some philosophers, like basically says like, um, in the greatest, um, danger lays the saving grace. Right. And that's, that's the sort of truth of like, of, of crises um, that in the same moment where so much um, suffering and so much like um, pain is at stake um, also is so much potential because of, of the sort of like collapsing of these institutions, the sort of like failure that, that's being revealed, like the way that, you know, um, even under Trump, um, we were, we were forced, like the, the government was kind of forced to like do things that would by, by some accounts be called like socialist policy or something, right? But like mostly because these things are just like so sensible, you know, like people, people need money to survive. No one has work, right? Like, of course that has to happen. Um, and then of course, the moment we had that, the moment we had um, the weight of work lifted off our backs, well, we, we kind of saw what their normalcy looked like right before the fucking pandemic and people went apeshit when they tried to put it back, which was right. to say they killed George Floyd as a way of imposing the normality. Um, that was like when we were trying to reopen like uh, uh, the economy. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point that I, I have a lot of conversations with friends um, who sort of share our same views about what the size and scale and just breadth of this pandemic did to essentially shred any sort of illusion, the veil between uh, reality under this dying capitalist system and how it, you know, its inner machinations is just laid bare for an entire population of people, right? Those of us who, who kind of just watch this shit and unrelentlessly grind people into dust, kind of already expected it to happen, right? Um, But now you have an entire population of people who are ostensibly radicalized by um, the crises that has gripped this country for the last nine months. Um, You know, folks staring at stimulus packages that do nothing to keep food in their mouths, right? And to keep Mm -hmm. them in, in uh, in their homes. Um, and, and you bring up a really good point that in these moments of crisis, there's always potential. And, um, you know, through my reporting this summer, um, throughout the uprising, and even before just seeing how communities reacted to these crises to help each other, right? Taking mm-hmm. groceries to one another, making sure that they were fed, making sure that they were checked in on um, was a big deal in my town. And uh, making sure that there wasn't um, a space for folks to fall through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're just now seeing in Portland a uh, robust eviction blockade that sprung up at a moment's notice when a family was about to be evicted in the middle of the winter during this pandemic. Um, and we're seeing just brilliant 
organizing happening all across the country. Because you're right, this uprising, I think, historically is is what the the biggest and most sustained American revolutionary yeah. uprising, um, anti-racist protests that have that literally spontaneously combusted across the entire country over one weekend. Amazing, right? And it's been very cool to see how that's kind of uh, transformed into further revolutionary projects that have just kind of grown out of that, right? Um, and I think that's, I think a lot of what you read about in Inhabit's main book, Instructions for Autonomy, is kind of seeing that spontaneity and taking advantage of it and being able to build something in the midst of crisis, right? The path B thinking, if you will, you know? Um, and that right there, I think is really important to sort of touch on is that this is not just the apocalypse. I mean, we're already fully aware that we are living through kind of a boring dystopia, you know? Um, but that every time there is some crack in the fault lines, where the ruling class that we expect to take care of these problems fails spectacularly, more people can also say, fuck it, I'm just going to do it myself, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, but the the twist on that phrase I would have, Mel, is not do it yourself, but let's do it ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly the types of practices you were talking about, the kind of mutual aid organizing that went into pandemic relief whether that's checking in on neighbors, providing groceries, uh, advocating for rent strikes, helping provide PPE to underserved communities and healthcare workers, to the line of yeah, eviction defense, which is an incredible thing we've seen lately. All of these things are practices rooted in an alternative way of living that contests and I would argue has the potential to overcome capitalism and the catastrophe it's bringing. So one of the things that's a very strong theme in Inhabit are the practices we can engage in now that allow us to live differently in the most immediate sense. So I see some of these issues less at the level of traditional political concerns or political movements and more about the basic conditions for life. And oftentimes, it's the defense of the very conditions for life to continue. Because as you've said, it's quite clear that if the ruling class continues to get their way, there will not be life on the planet Earth for that much longer. And, you know, that's, you know, maybe a bit of an extravagant claim, but I think reading the science headlines day after day bears that out. And again, I don't want to dwell on the suffering, but I do want to keep it present. But... If we began this conversation by thinking of the year 2020 as the year from hell, then part of me worries that the 2020s as a decade are going to be a decade of hell. But again, what inspires me and what Inhabit wants to forefront are all those amazing practices, collective, communal, caring, combative, that are rooted in people's practical experiences of resistance and revolt and community building that allow us to glimpse what it would be to live in a different kind of world. So it's separate from, you know, your conventional political, for lack of a better word, crap. Like this is like a philosophy of prefiguration, essentially, that the ability to uh, build these communities that can sort of usurp the, the, the power structures that tend to govern our lives as, the instructions for autonomy say to become ungovernable is something that is true and near and immediate and can be done today, tomorrow, the next day without having to um, ascribe to any sort of political ideology really um, in order to improve your community. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, well, I think, I think on the one hand, yes, like just at the, at the bare kind of like practical level of like, these are things we can do now. These are things that people are already doing. There's, there's wisdom and there's like experience to draw on that goes well beyond like, um, that activist ped pedagogy right. or like most leftist things. Right. Um, there's like, you know, like, uh, ancient like wisdom of like how to use plants as medicine. There's like, um, you know, like political techniques that 
go across Western and like um, Eastern history in terms of like war or something like that. Like just, you know, thinking through like, I could read Kalswitz, you could read Sun Tzu or something. Um, but but I'd also want to say that like, it's it's not just as easy as, as um, I, I think like some, some of the, the um, things I've, I've seen put forward as prefiguration does have a certain um, saccharine kind of like thing that I don't think, I think we're a little bit more roll up your sleeves than that. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. uh, there, there is a certain scale, there is a certain um, level of like, um, you know, like um, there's a certain way of thinking where we have to kind of think, okay, so it's it's not just that we can start with our neighbors and and then like multiply the thing with our neighbors. We actually do have to be kind of strategic from that point and, re and recall the way that like, you know, wherever you are, wherever you start, you have these certain dispositions, uh, passions, experiences, skill sets, right? And at some point you might reach a limit because we're actually talking about um, ungoverning the world, right? We're talking about repairing, um, some some damage that has been done for um, a very fucking long time, and uh, that that probably requires sort of like technical skills that most of us um, don't have direct access to just yet, right? Um, like certain levels of engineering, certain levels of um, of science, um, and like like a very specific thing is well, how do you dismantle uh, certain infrastructure like a nuclear power plant um, without injuring quite a lot of people. Well, what, what does it take to like kind of do that? Or uh, another kind of level is like, well, these questions of like food at scale. Um, what are the problems that big agribusiness and small agribusiness are both steeped in that we have to kind of answer if we're imagining um, what it would mean to like feed people? And even even if that's sort of like organized at a sort of like confederated level by by um, bioregions or something, you still kind of have to think those those questions through. And so, at some point, we kind of get to a tension um, that the conventional kind of like politics gets to um, oftentimes, you know, from the left, um, or at least from from modern revolution as seizing state power or um, hoping that it withers away, right? So I just want to like kind of like chime that that, that, that that there is still sort of like another thing I think we're trying to like point to that under like wants to really understand the scale and intensity of a sort of like almost unimaginable um, interconnected infrastructure across the earth that govern us governs us even more than um, the states the nation states that you know the, these uh, this infrastructure moves through. And then also kind of call out almost like a different, for, for lack of a better word, um, an intensity of ethics that's almost sort of like spiritually grounded, um, where we start to think about weird stuff like, um, you know, like what kind of lessons we want to teach our children or something like that. Um, you know, like what does it mean to like be living in this way? I think, I think my friend um, James, you know, was talking about the really like. The whole of life here and i think like at a micro level you think like really what are the sort of values um that you want to to like teach people um that you want to like um sort of like embody yourself and how do those like small kind of values link themselves into sort of like a strategic rethinking of um a revolution in a very you know different condition than we were maybe in um, 100 years ago, even 30 years ago. Is that right. too much out there? No, that's great. James, do you want to speak to that? I'm happy to hop in here because I think Sean is on to something. And for the listeners, I would, I would uh, pull this out too as kind of a key theme of Inhabit is an understanding of power, not always reducible to the political forms we're used to, and more this attention to the way that power circulates as a network, and in the modern world, it's based on infrastructure. Infrastructural is the kind of material, technical underpinnings 
systems and knowledges that rule, that govern the world as it is. That's everything from coal plants to timber operations to high-speed trading networks to data centers, the whole apparatus that makes this civilization run. And again, as Sean pointed out, ironically, it's undermining its own conditions of possibility. But we are very interested at Inhabit of thinking through the ways in which those systems can be challenged and dismantled. Some of them, as we've said, will have to be destroyed, period. There's no way around that. There are other ones that we're very curious, how can these be reappropriated, redistributed, rewired and reconfigured, hacked, if you will, to break open new ways of living? I think this is the biggest challenge. And I've kind of come around to this perspective. It might actually be pretty easy to defeat the police and overthrow the government. It'll be a lot harder to decarbonize the energy system. It'll be harder to deal with topsoil loss. These are actually the challenges I think we need to be organized at the proper scale and with the proper seriousness to really think about what revolution means and the way to inhabit the, the catastrophe that they are, have promised for us. I think these are really practical, grounded challenges that people all over the world really need to be working towards. For me, that is really what revolution means at this time. Nice. Any other thoughts, Sean? It's a conversation. Let's chat about it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just trying to think through those things. Um... Let me put it this way. I think you bring up an interesting point, James, because what we are dealing with is an immediate existential threat to the communities that we live in with um, rogue police forces killing uh, black populations all over the country. Um, and we mm -hmm. are reacting, uh, I think, to it constantly. Um, and well, I'm trying proactively too, as well, to mitigate the effects of uh, a police force and a carceral system that just causes so much destruction in this country. Um, but I also think that, you know, not paying attention to the ongoing effects of climate change, um, the economic fallout from this pandemic does the same thing to black and brown populations in this country because they are disproportionately affected by it. Um, our healthcare system is in shambles. You know, we have really no recourse right now um, through the appropriate channels, if you will, to find a solution for this in a timely manner that um, will save some lives. Um, and, and I think our, our current systemic challenges that have been brought upon our heads by a government that clearly just doesn't give a flying fuck about 95% of this population um, and a world system that constantly uh, actively advocates for letting a group of uh, disadvantaged folks fall through the cracks because it increases profits. Um, it's something to be reckoned with. And so I think having these conversations in the context of Inhabit's main philosophy is extremely important. Any comments on that? I think it's important. I think this is, these conversations should be had, you know, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of the people that I speak with on a somewhat regular basis have also talked about how do we, how do we build infrastructure that is going to make sure that the marginalized groups, the disadvantaged groups, the disabled groups of people who just want to live their lives are not, you know, disproportionately affected by any changes that we might make in the future. And you mm -hmm. often, you often have sort of like these vanguardist leftists who speak so highly of the revolution, right? Whatever that looks like. Um, and yet don't have an answer for what's going to happen if there's medication shortages when a government mm -hmm. collapses, right? What yeah. happens to, you know, we've already seen this with the pandemic. Disabled folks are disproportionately set on a list that says that they will not receive care if they're, they get COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it's the choice between someone who is, you know, physically or mentally disabled and someone who is uh, 100% quote unquote not uh, neurodivergent or, you know, is a normal person who seems healthy, the healthy person gets the treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's that those are the types of decisions that uh, folks are forced to make all the time. Right. Um, 
we are losing an entire generation of elder folks to this pandemic because we couldn't safeguard uh, nursing homes fast enough. Um, and no one really gave a shit, right? The hospitals can't handle the influx of patients. And so folks are dying at home, you know, because they get turned away at the door, right? Because they're not young. I mean, these these decisions that are being made in, in, within the context of this pandemic, like constantly I find myself butting heads with certain people who really advocate revolution, but have no answer for how to make sure those people don't also die in the process, you know? And yeah. so I think it's important to have these conversations and I think Inhabit allows for that space. I mean, even in your instructions for autonomy, we are talking about the sort of like intergenerational networks that will allow us to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks, right? Um, and that whatever revolution ends up looking like, whether it's an uprising, whether it's incremental, whether it's just a total collapse of government in 10 years, um, and we just kind of fill in the space, still those conversations being had now is really important, mm -hmm. I would say, you know? I mean, there's something like, just almost like um, shockingly like heartless, right? About about this this system, and and I think there's like, it's 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 almost it's so cliche to say, but like, you know, like we we're the we we're the heirs to a sort of like organization of life, a certain architecture, and a certain system systemization of health and and um, and care that has already put people in these little ghettos where they, if there's infection, it's going to spread. Um, where we've already sort of uh, or organized like what life is livable and what life is not. And I mean, I, to me, like it's just like it's yeah, it's so heartless. It's so clear how wicked the system is, you know. Um, and I, I don't think we have you know, from our, our little towns or something, the, the best example to provide for anyone. But I do think the question is what matters, you know, to, to pose that of like, I mean, we're the heirs to a civilization that eats its young and lets its elderly rot. And for the rest, it offers a sort of perverse happiness of like an internal sort of adolescence. Like it, it promises us uh, at best right now that uh, like a couple like could be capable of having or adopting their first child in their mid thirties, like depriving children of any prolonged multi-generational experience. Like that's the happiness it promises us. And at worst, it's the decision based on so much sort of reason, um, like financial sort of like uh, calculations to not become parents because love appears archaic because desire is only fleeting and because the world appears unlivable. And I think the the deaths, I mean, I think in, in New York, it was something like one in six persons uh, over the age of 60 died of coronavirus, which is an obscene number of people died, you know? Right. Um, so and the, that, like, I mean, now we're getting up to 300,000 deaths. We have had close to 100,000 yeah. people who have died in the last, what, five weeks? Five weeks? Yeah. 3,000 deaths a day? I mean, we have now gotten over the number of people who died during World War II. That's right. right? I mean, when, yeah, when Bush did 9-11, like, that was a lot, right? But, like, <laughs> So much more. I mean, but seriously, you think about just the size and the scale of this catastrophe, because that's what it is. It's it's a it's a government that has that made the decision from the jump, the minute that they pumped money into the stock market instead of the people's pockets, was the minute mm -hmm. they made that decision that they were going to tell us in no uncertain terms to fuck off and die on the altar of capitalism, because that is how this system works. And from that mm -hmm. point forward, it should have been very clear to as many people as possible that we were on our own and that we were the ones who were going to have to find a way through and hopefully, God willing, survive this, right? And it gets me really heated because it's like this didn't have, it didn't have to be this way and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be this way. And that there is, yeah. there's at least, you know, when we're staring down the barrel of 2021, which is shaping up to be either the same or like worse uh, than 2020, right? 
um, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to be able to find some sort of level of hopeful optimism? Um, you know, the only way out is through together. What does that look like? Right. And I think inhabit mm -hmm. offers a really unique space for you to grapple with those questions and also to vent your rage and to be able to find solutions to these, these very real problems that are happening in this country. Um, and hopefully, hopefully come out, come out on the other side of this, even relatively unscathed, you know, it's just, you know, it's really difficult because we have reached a point in our perception of this year, particularly in relation to COVID, um, where the fact that we have seen a hundred thousand people die, uh, it doesn't even phase us anymore. Like mm -hmm. it's become, it used to be terrifying and then it was overwhelming and then it just kind of faded to the background and now it's just normal to see this many people get put in the ground due to a virus that could have been handled um, and marginally less uh, devastating, marginally, extremely less devastating in this country had we had, you know, had we had a ruling class that actually gave a shit about us um, and had we lived under a system that actually gave a shit about humanity and, and you know, autonomy and um, give us, given us the space to thrive, you know, um, it just it boggles the mind sometimes that like we have reached a, maybe I'm getting cynical. Okay. Um, very cynical, uh, but it boggles the mind that we have not had more of these conversations in this country um, in the last six months um, that haven't, you know, extended beyond vote for Joe Biden, you know? The situation is heartbreaking and it's staggering. There's no way around that. And I don't care how sharp your political analysis is. I don't care what your line is on this side and the other. If that's not a fundamental truth that you're feeling and experiencing this year, then I'm probably going to meet some of your opinions with a degree of skepticism because this is a test of our subjectivities, of our humanity, of our ability to care about one another. And fundamentally, as Sean said, it's about our ethics. It's our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with our communities, and the visions, the hopeful visions that we want to see for the future. These are the things that are at stake. You know, we have been abandoned, and the only way through is to do the work to get us through. They do not care if we die. It's up to us to give ourselves the means to live and fight. You know, that's an old inhabit line that I think is worth returning to. To jump back to the idea of revolution, and I'm riffing on what you've said earlier, Mel, if your vision of revolution doesn't account for the ability to heal, care for, feed, house, and give meaningful, dignified lives to people everywhere, then I don't think it's much of a concept of revolution. And this is one of the reasons that Inhabit picks up this theme of autonomy, because autonomy is about our ability to provide the means and arts of existence in a whole series of diverse ways that aren't reliant upon the extractivist and racialized notions of capitalist economic development. It's as simple as that. We have to give ourselves the means to continue in the most immediate sense you know, that's defense uh, from police violence. But that's also in the more medium term sense, that's the questions of industrial pollution of black and brown communities. And in the long term, that's like defense of, you know, the other species subject to the sixth mass extinction. And, you know, we might be the period at the end of that sentence. So we have to think and operate at all of these different scales. Again, in the immediate sense is a question of survival. But you know, that's kind of what they want us to be thinking about, is mere survival. They don't really want us to ask questions about what a dignified life is. They don't want us to ask what it means to be free. You know, they are perfectly happy for us to continue to remain dissatisfied, indignant, whatever, right? So I think one of the challenges is to tap into that optimism, which of course can be difficult, and to say, no, here's what we believe. 
Here's what we're fighting for. Here's the world that we want to live in. It's not just a question of survival. It's a question of what it would mean to thrive and flourish as a society, as communities. That, to me, is what this is about. Right. Sean, you want to jump in? No, I think I'm, I think that's pretty chill. I mean, I wanted to, like, I guess if, if there was a question that related to it, I might jump in. Well, I mean, I think that's a good that's a good turn for the last 15 minutes of this uh, interview, I think, is to really kind of leave it with something optimistic. And mm -hmm. there is so much about Inhabit that allows you to build hope and optimism. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think really kind of digging into the concept of what does revolution look like in this country and what should it look like? And how should it be, right? Um, so, sort of a side note, I remember listening to a very interesting conversation between two uh, very, very good people that I know. Uh, it was a podcast conversation from 2019 where sort of like social utopian anarchism versus, you know, um, for lack of a better term, authoritarian communism. And they had a really interesting conversation about what does revolution necessarily mean there will be violence and how do we mitigate the trauma of revolution uh so that we don't have you know uh a cycle starting over where there is this intergenerational trauma of the actual rupture itself right um and what that looks like and i think it's really interesting and really heartening to me that inhabit really does grapple with these questions about how to mitigate that trauma how to build something that allows for people to thrive um how to uh, you know, understand how to take care of communities, what that looks like, how to be compassionate, how to build these networks in a way that allows for hope, optimism, happiness, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think to end this conversation, I think we can probably speak to that a little bit more, um, what that looks like and, and how that sort of builds organically out of the conversations that, that you have been having um, and that everyone who really thinks about inhabit uh, as a, a method for our, uh, you know, revolutionary autonomy has also had, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, for one, I think like just when I'm kind of dwelling on optimism, I kind of consider myself a cold optimist. But you know, like in in, in my my short you know life on Earth, most of it like there's been a sort of steady trend. Of uprising. I mean, basically, like for in the last twenty or so years, there's increasingly less time between what we might call like the the normal like um, flow of of like of capital and all these things, and these sort of like what we could call events or, or ruptures. But um, by event, I mean something that kind of like takes hold of like you and kind of calls you towards it, um, and then at a rupture, kind of what we're actually rupturing. And like interrupting um, the normal flow of like commodities and stuff. So, in our life, you know, like there's actually, if you imagine like a chronological um, line of, of time, you can see that being populated by more and more um, moments of of eruption and ungovernability, and and increasingly less of um, you know uh, of governance and like successful administration with all of its miserable kind of like uh, daily atrocities um like we said of course that that these crises also involve um potential suffering um and i do think like the question of, of how to mitigate that is important and i think that that's determined um really by you know what what ethics you really hold dear and like the strength you're able to um, cultivate within those ethics collectively, like the, the material power you're able to generate in order to decisively act on those ethics. Um, and, and even at times in, impose them, I should say. Um, however, uh, I think another kind of like moment of, of optimism is just like, you know, in spite of like, you know, there's one reading of, of a long history um, for me where 
everything terrible starts when like Aristotle starts talking about Zoe and Bios being separate or something like some weird thing in philosophy that indicts all the politics and Western civilization. Um, there's another uh, that, you know, while people were doing those things, like while people were um, colonizing, while people, um, you know, were uh, having like wars over nonsense, there's like a big part of the world that just like wasn't a part of that, you know, perhaps they had their own dramas and their own um, war and bloodshed, but um, it's, it's not, um, it was never at the sort of like scale uh, or um, imperial like successes um, as, as Western civilization or whatever. Um, and so because of that, you know, I, I do draw some um, inspiration and optimism from the various like uh, histories of both resistance um, to, you know, um, domination, like at a, at a broad kind of like general concept or whatever, like a broad, a broad um, version of that term, um, state, colonization, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, the other sort of histories that like are closer to, to my family or something um, of you know, the old workers movement or something. Um, to bring that really into today, I think we have to kind of like, uh, well, we, we have to kind of look at the, the situation. Um, and and I think this like this, I, the separation between, or this, this distinction we make um, that the, the book makes between, you know, path A and path B is that in, in particular, when we're because we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about techniques, we're talking about skills and such, right? If it is our labor at, at the broadest um, level that is what keeps um, everything going, then the old kind of idea of a general strike, at least theoretically, makes sense, right? That we could actually withdraw our labor. But what what our kind of task is, because we have all of this infrastructure that actually um, like our, our civilization is kind of contingent on is not just withdrawing our labor from it, um, but like what James was saying, like kind of hacking it, right? Being able to, to look around and see um, not just the proper use of something or the way to, to use it um, that's against the rules, but a, a, a totally new use of it. And luckily for us, um, the like history shows that uh, people are capable of this, you know, both like in that broad history that I'm talking about um, and in our more immediate um, history of like of struggles and of, you know, the, the small events of everyday life um, where we see the emergence of, you know, hacking, making, um, even like weird prepper kind of stuff, all that stuff as like a way people are taking what sort of the excesses um, of this of this civilization and administration and social life, um, like what what kind of escapes that, and then finding a, a a way to give it give it life, give it their own kind of passions. I think. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, um, maybe I'll kind of jump to another little point that could like theoretically ground us in an interesting way, right? Um, we might say that we, you know, we, what James pointed out about like why autonomy is the kind of like terminology that, that we think is a useful kind of like um, way to think revolution that like rather than uh, seizing state power, rather than um, even like um, anarchism as its um, particular history uh, at the turn of the century. Um, but, so we kind of think that you know, revolutions of the past have, have sought to seize um, the state and impose measures in the form of like a new law. Um, e even in some ways, like the anarchism's history is something like that with not seizing the state, but seizing like um, the norms or whatever and imposing its own kind of new morality um, 
through, for example, like collectivism, like like as a measure in, in Spain or whatever. But we think that power is already sort of vacated, like most of the of the halls of Congress, as it were, and it resides in this sort of technological infrastructure that we rely on, and that I was I was mentioning before the sort of like the potential that we all carry with us, which Marxists sometimes call it labor power. Um, autonomy is like uh, the linguistics of it is kind of interesting because it comes from not the uh, not the law, which is like nomos. A lot of times people kind of associate with the law, but nemian, which means to dwell. And so, like, uh, it, it also kind of means a song, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of think about this as like each unique place has its own kind of like way, its own way of dwelling, its own sort of like song that if you could listen to, you would actually know how you're what what the place want how it wants you to interact there mm -hmm. and i mean this you know <laughs> i'm not gonna lie like how i don't i don't um like i strongly believe this i insist <laughs> that this is how the world works this is a truth that places have a song that we should listen to that places have a way to them um and that that doesn't mean that if you're of a place with a way that you couldn't drift to another place and find its way too, you know? Right. Um, but that there is something important about honoring that um, in our daily practices and then finding what ways we kind of, um, we, we like adjust ourselves to the rhythm of that and like act on it and are acted on it ourselves. So uh, when we think about revolution today and we think about it where we are, like it, it, um, it may involve the kind of like the images we, we think of a revolution, right? Of, of some elements of like large crowds seizing things. Um, but the trap we can't fall for is that um, if we just take over it, you know, we win or whatever, because we actually have to like, like in, in regards, um, like defunding the police or you know, like in some ways the, the tragedy uh, of a place like the, the Chaz experiment in, in Seattle, the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Um, like unless we actually like reconfigure and redetermine not only the, the access of the police to the monopoly of force, but also the, the social interactions like the, the social relationships we have in a place um the the way that architecture determines certain things of us um the the way it gets food like there's probably no way to abolish the police um without revolution and there's no way to achieve revolution um that has a meaningful uh like for that word to have meaning today um will necessarily have to mean cutting off certain infrastructure like cutting off the the, the flows of certain infrastructure cutting off like re reconfiguring the sort of use of that infrastructure and eliminating some of it mm -hmm. james to go to your question earlier Mel, I think it's a tremendous challenge. And again, something else we should take very seriously is the kind of traumatic experience that a revolutionary rupture could bring. Mm. So in the most immediate sense, it's material, like many of the things we've been discussing. But then it raises these kind of psychic fallout questions that we raised regarding the coronavirus. And I often wonder about the kind of intersubjective holdovers that we might experience because we are raised in this particularly horrific and miserable kind of society where violence is so prevalent, where people don't know how to relate to each other, where we, we feel sick in our souls, these kind of cultural attributes that we grew up with, you know, how are we going to overcome them? How are we not going to reenact some of those traumas in a revolutionary setting? And, you know, based on some of our experiences ourselves in the George Floyd rebellion, 
it raises difficult and troubling thoughts. What would it be like to really live without the police? Like joyous for one, safer for another, but at the same time, there will still be conflict. There still will be drama. There still will be violence. And I think it's up to us to think about the ways, and you know, this will certainly look different in different places and among different communities, to mediate and to resolve those tensions and conflicts. You know, I pretty, I'm pretty comfortable with being described as a utopian, but my utopianism doesn't go so far as to think that there still won't be conflict in the future, in the revolution, in communism, whatever you want to say. I think those things are still going to be there and it behooves us to think and to invent or to rediscover ways in which we can resolve those tensions, let's say peacefully, right? And certainly that's not going to look like the reestablishment of the law. It's not going to look like instituting a new police force. None of these things to me solve the problem. It's something that can only happen with a deep and rigorous work about reconfiguring our ethics and relationships with one another. I think it's one of the great unsolved challenges that we face just as much as the material conditions of climate change. I agree. Um, I think that's a really good place to actually stop this conversation because we could talk about this for three hours um, <laughs> and really get really get into the nitty gritty. Um, but I really, I think I want to end on this. I think that the unique thing about Inhabit is that it really has created a space for um, hope to thrive in the ruins of this world. Um, and that it's also offered us a space to really build and have these really tough conversations. Um, and I, I, every time I talk to someone who is in, you know, part of inhabit, I'm always coming at, we're always coming at each other on equal footing. Right. Um, it's something where, um, there's possibility and potential in every conversation that we have, and it's endlessly refreshing. And so I really appreciate that both of you took the time to sit down with me and chat about this. Um, where can folks reach out to the group on social media or elsewhere? You want to drop your website, um, any other points of contact, if the newsletter is still going? Yeah, um, <laughs> you can uh, find Inhabit um, at inhabit.global or readinhabit.com. You can find Inhabit on Twitter at readinhabit. You can find Inhabit on Instagram at um, inhabitglobal, uh, inhabit.global, so I think on Instagram. And then um, the newsletter is territories.inhabit.global. Yeah, and give us an email if you want to say hello. It's hello and have a talk a little bit. We got lots of places you could come hang out. Um, yeah, the news, I mean, the newsletter is um, a sort of uh, usually every month kind of installation um, of, you know, some reflection, um, the different kinds of like attempts to, to share tools and resources. Um, that people have had in, in building autonomy in their hubs. And so a lot of times there'll be like a um, like an op-ed kind of thing where, where we might say a little bit of what we're thinking about um, responding to the news cycle or responding to different events. And then um, we've had like a couple different like installations about um, different rural communes and, and their experiences during, um, during the pandemic. Um, we, we had a very long, um, collectively written text that was released in July, I believe that was, um, called, it was in the dignity issue, uh, but it was also released as a little zine, um, called a gift for humanity, the George Floyd uprising. Yeah. I don't know. Um, we're always looking for people who want to take, you know, roll up their sleeves and <laughs> get to work or whatever. Um, just connect with people and have it like isn't exactly like we're we're of a network um and we're always happy for people um to to make links locally so if you reach out to us and you're like i'm here and we happen to know people there then we'd like to connect y'all and we find ways to do that um if you're you know like um you like to post like funny content and you want to talk about like ecology or you want to talk about technology uh, design 
or just like shitpost or what we call doom post, you can go to pathb.net and it's like inhabit chan. Um, if you have, you know, uh, a certain passion and skill set and you don't, you think that that would be really like exciting to collaborate on something with, um, you can reach out and you can talk about that. We've worked with a couple different like artists and designers on a few projects and we're excited to do more of that. Very cool. Hell yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, we're running over an hour. Otherwise, we could just keep talking yeah, about this. <laughs> um, but I think this is a very good conversation. And I'm glad that we got the chance to have it. So thank you for, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Mel. This has been great. Thanks again for tuning in to Protean Pirate Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us tonight. If you love what you're hearing and would like to support us as we navigate the uncharted waters of our dystopian present, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash protean pod. Until next time.